0: Good evening. If you have your copy of God's Word handy, you can be turning to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is going to be our focus this evening as we think about what we can learn from this Old Testament book, one that I think many of us agree we probably have never really studied in great detail, and one we probably don't know a whole lot about, uh, but I think it can be encouraging for us as we uh, even think about the ways in which we learn from the Old Testament books that, that well, we continue to read today. Uh, A few things that we need to just make note of up front as we begin. Uh, Number one, many of you, you don't even have to be a good Bible student, but many of you know that uh, next month we're due up for the Song of Solomon, and I've already received some uh, questions or complaints or worries about that, if you know anything about the subject material of the Song of Solomon, but uh, have no fear. Uh, My family may not be here to to listen, but uh, uh, we plan to cover that book next month, and it will be encouraging, and certainly the material in that is one that we're not used to discussing, but I think it would be good for us uh, to consider some of the things that are there. Uh, Number two... Uh, one uh, doctor in the audience in particular who is usually sarcastic, especially to me, has already reminded me that the very last of the book of Ecclesiastes says that the whole of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. And I could simply say that and sit down and save us all a lot of time tonight. Uh, if that's the whole of man is to fear God, then, then okay, there you got it. amen in too. Uh, but no, we're going to do our best to cover this material timely. Uh, but we're going to say a little bit more than that about the book of Ecclesiastes Uh, And number three is, we ran out of bulletins this morning, and I printed a few more, and those are already gone, but if you have your bulletin in front of you for your notes, you would take note that I did my best to inspire confidence in you and in this lesson by misspelling Ecclesiastes in the bulletin, Uh, and so I want to say thank you because if you notice that, no one has said that to me, but this is what happens when the secretary goes on vacation and the preacher is left to do the work, uh, and he misspells even the book in the bulletin, so uh, don't worry. Hopefully, the the lesson will be better than that kind of start to this. Uh, We are talking about Ecclesiastes tonight, which is covered in the section of Scripture that we often refer to as wisdom literature. We've talked about this several times over the last few months as we have begun to look at Psalms, which is considered poetry, lyrical poetry. And we have talked for the last couple of months on, or last month on Proverbs, and this month on Ecclesiastes. The big word, the high dollar word that's sometimes used is didactic. Uh, Didactic poetry or uh, didactic literature the word didactic simply means teaching or meant for teaching if you think back to the book of Proverbs the wise man would write very often in Proverbs he would implore his son he would say my son listen. Well, that's something that we still do today. We encourage our children to be listening to what we have to tell them, even if it's not necessarily spiritually related, but it has to do with teaching, and the book of Ecclesiastes certainly has to do with that as well, and hopefully in the next coming months we'll get through uh, the rest of the books that are listed there. As we begin to get into some of the background information, of course, Ecclesiastes, we often talk about the human author. We know that the author of many of the books, or all the books, I guess I should say, I don't mean to misspeak there, is the Holy Spirit, in a sense, as the Holy Spirit uh, gave men the things that they need to write. But we want to also mention uh, each month with the book, the human author, the person who would have recorded these things by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there in chapter 1, in verse number 1 of Ecclesiastes, the Bible begins, or the book begins, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, when we say son of David, that kind of narrows it down. When you say son of David, who was king in Jerusalem, that really narrows it down. Now, we joke sometimes as we go through these lessons about so-called scholars. uh, I know that some heard some preachers say... Excuse me, that you will find, you probably know some of these people in your own family or your own life, but, but people who will argue about anything, right? I mean, even when it's playing, we could sit here uh, at noon and say, Look at that, that sky, it's so bright outside, and some people would just say, No, it's not, it's dark, you know, just to argue. And so sometimes when it comes even to the authors, the human authors of these books, there are some people that I think just like to argue. Uh, You know, there are are epistles written by Paul who some people will say it wasn't written by Paul, even though it says it was written by Paul. And so you'll find some people that might argue over this a little bit. uh, But we would say that the author of this book is uh, Solomon, son of David, king in Jerusalem. I didn't put it in our notes, but I would like to make one note here about the title. I don't know about you, the Bible that you use. Mine has a bit of an introduction, just this particular Bible over each book. And mine discusses the idea of the title, where Ecclesiastes actually came from. And uh, when we think about the Hebrew manuscripts, the original Hebrew manuscripts, many of them didn't have a title per se. And so what what happened was when we... When the translators, we often refer to those who translated the Hebrew into the Greek. We call it the Septuagint. You may see that in your Bible or if you know Bible history. Because there were 70 translators, another thing that you may see in your Bible is the idea of LXX, uh, the Roman numeral for 70. Because there were 70 translators who translated the Hebrew into the Greek, what we call the Septuagint. And often when they were going through these books, they would say, well, you know what? we got to call it something, so what are we going to call it? Well, sometimes they would certainly go to the very first verse, very first chapter, very first verse, to look at what to call it. And so when we think about this idea of Ecclesiastes, the Greek translators went back to this word that is used here for preacher. Now, the word that's used there for preacher is keheleth in the Hebrew, and if my information is correct, this is the only time that that word is used, but it means... Preacher, if you will, and the Greek word that is used is ecclesia. That's where we get Ecclesiastes from. Do you know the word ecclesia? Many of you do. We often refer to it as the church, the ecclesia, the called out. And so here, the idea of Ecclesiastes is we're saying someone who is going to call the assembly together and then be a speaker. Now, there's a word that's used sometimes, we don't, we don't refer to it, it's not exactly biblical, but the idea of a lay preacher, and, and that's kind of the idea here maybe of Solomon calling together a group of people in assembly, and then he's going to preach, if you will. The idea is calling people together with something important to say. And so the Latin ecclesiastes means the speaker before an assembly or the preacher, the ecclesia, ecclesiastes, and so many of us who have studied the New Testament and know that word and the idea of calling out, that is where this came from as we think about the title. Let's talk about a few other points. Number one, or again, in addition here, the idea of the date. The date ultimately is unknown, but if you have your bulletin in front of you in the notes, I'd ask you to note that it is probably, probably near the end of Solomon's life. Let me share with you some Jewish tradition. We know that Jewish tradition is simply that. It's simply tradition. But think about what we know that Solomon wrote. And let's think about the progression of things. Well, first of all, we know that Solomon wrote Song of Solomon. We're going to talk about that next month, God be willing. But think about the book of Solomon. People say that it was written early in his life. And that might make sense because the Song of Solomon carries with it a a zest, if you will, a youthfulness to the Song of Solomon. So maybe it's quite possible that he wrote that at the beginning of his life. We also know that he wrote Proverbs. Proverbs would have been written, we think, maybe around the middle of his life. You think about the wisdom that is there. He's had time for some of these things. He's writing to his son. He says, my son, quite often, to learn these things. So then it might make sense, possibly, that the book of Ecclesiastes was written near the end of his life. Now, if you're making notes, one of the guesstimates, if you will, is around 931 BC, around 931 BC, and the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of Solomon maybe looking back on his life. I said at the beginning, it's probably not one that we've studied a lot, but if you know the book, then it's what it sounds like, someone looking back saying, I have some regrets. Now again, this is just Jewish tradition, But it does kind of make sense to see this progression. He's saying in the book of Ecclesiastes, I've been to the school of hard knocks, as we say in today's society. The glory of Solomon's kingdom, if this is the end of his life, the glory of his kingdom has already begun to fade. And why is that? Well, it's due mostly because of his sin and his sin of marrying and being led astray by foreign women. And so soon his kingdom would be divided. And so one might see Ecclesiastes as an inspired expression of his regret. And he's almost saying, you can almost hear, he's saying, are you listening? You know, there are a lot of public speakers and motivational speakers. Schools pay people to come to school, right, and talk about their jail time or their drunk driving or the problems they had with drugs. And they're saying to young people as they come to these schools, they're saying, are you listening? You don't have to go through that listen to what I went through and don't suffer the same fate. And it's kind of interesting to consider that if it was written at the end of his life, that it is possible that that's what Solomon is saying. Are you listening? I've done it. I've lived these things. And here's what I have to say. You don't have to make the same mistakes. Learn these lessons. Let's talk about a few key words that are used in the book. First of all, there is God. The the name of God is used About 40 times, so certainly takes a a lot of precedent here, mentioned quite often. Secondly, we would think about one of the key words is vanity. Now, depending on the version that you have in front of you, you may see the word futility. Uh, Different versions may have a little bit of a change there, but vanity. Uh, 37 times or around 37 times it's used. I heard someone say 38 possibly, but if you have your Bible open there, you even notice in the first chapter, very often he doubles up on it vanity of vanities futility is is a word that is used a lot in this book of ecclesiastes and then number three we might say under the sun which is used 29 times under the sun is a really strong candidate because the idea of under the sun is the idea of being without god if you're making notes there you might write next to under the sun being without god because The writer here is going to say things like this. What is life under the sun? Well, what he's getting at is what is life without God? And what's the answer? Vanity. Futility. That's what life is without God. And so he's going to kind of sort of make this declaration time and time again. And every time you see under the sun, you can kind of put forth or maybe substitute there in your own reading uh, the idea of without God. What is life without god or under the sun i didn't put this on the on the slides but i want to make note i usually try to give you a few key verses you're very familiar with the ones from ecclesiastes already the first we might say the first group is ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 and that's what we all know as a time to do many different things a time to be born and a time to die we won't read through all of those but you're very familiar with that and if that's even well known in the secular world, you know, in pop culture and songs and movies and things. This idea in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is used. But that is one that is well known. The second one, of course, we might suggest is Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, the end of the book. Uh, with the idea of, you know, what is the whole of man, hearing the conclusion, and we're going to come back to that in a few moments as we really think about the message, but that of course is one, but let me give you one more. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, chapter 8 verses 12 through 13. Brian reminded me as he was sort of picking out songs this afternoon that and many folks may not know, but that the song, It Is Well With My Soul, has reference, or at least in our songbook, has reference to Ecclesiastes, and it's chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. We don't usually read these, so we'll read them together very quickly. But the writer says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. It is well with those who fear the Lord. And even, we like the idea, maybe not like it, but understand the idea here, that very often we see evil people having success in life. That's frustrating to us here on this earth. But we know that ultimately we need to fear God. Even back to our lesson this morning, as we talked about things that we would tell our children. Things that we would teach our kids, one would be the fear of God and following after him. And so that is certainly an important passage, even making the connection with the song that we sang just a few moments ago. I want to give you a brief outline. This is not in your bulletin either because we do only have so much room in there. But first of all, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we might call the Declaration of Futility. Or vanity. All of these are going to have the word futility in them because that is kind of the theme of vanity or futility. Uh, but verses one through eleven are the declaration of futility. And it begins to think about how life is vanity. Life is futile as we think about all the things that take place here on this earth. But beginning in verse number 12, you may have a break uh, in your In your Bible, as you look at your Bible there, man-made break, but beginning in chapter 1 in verse 12, we see the demonstration of futility. The preacher, the speaker, begins by sort of declaring about life and the vanity of life, but then he's going to spend six chapters, a good portion of the book, demonstrating that. And the demonstration of futility, it is by seeking or searching for happiness in many different things in wisdom, in wealth, in power and prestige, if you are looking for happiness and meaning in life in any of those things, those earthly things, this is a demonstration of futility, of vanity. And you know, it's Interesting because we see that, right? I mean, you go pick up a biography of someone, a famous athlete or a famous musician. Some of those folks get to the end of their life, and they've lived hard, right? They've lived fast. They've lived hard. and They look back, and they say, you know what? I don't remember a lot of that. Or you know what? It wasn't as much fun as sometimes we make it seem like it is, or the movies make it seem like it is. And they can look back and say whether it was the wealth or the attention or whatever it might be, it is a demonstration of futility. Then we go to the back half of the book, chapter 7 through chapter 12, and we might say that the writer then begins to discuss the deliverance from futility. And that is, the deliverance is realizing that these things are not the source of happiness. I mean, listen, listen to him. He's saying it. I will save you the trouble. I can tell you right now, you're going to waste your time. You may even cause damage to your body. You may even cause damage to your relationships, but I can save you the time and tell you that that's not the source of happiness. None of those things. They might give you the high, as we think about things like drug use, you know, it gives you a high for a short time, but it's not going to give you the true happiness that you really desire, the meaning in life that you desire. Those things are vanity. And you need to be delivered from from that, in a sense. So that's a very brief outline. There are others that are more detailed, but that kind of gives you something to look at as you think about this particular book. Let's notice as well, then, that in Ecclesiastes, one interesting note that you might consider is that there is a little bit of of pre-scientific knowledge. And if you have your Bible, let's look at chapter 1 again. Chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The writer here says The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. And that's the New King James Version that I usually uh, have here as I am uh, preaching. You might notice here that the Bible, by inspiration, is discussing something around the idea of the wind and the water cycle that the earth goes through. You know, I think I've shared with you one of my lessons before that I've done on science and the Bible, had the opportunity to present many years ago, and we go back to the, the days of the children of Israel and all the instructions that God gave, including the eating of pork that most people kind of know about uh, when it comes to the Jews, But but even that kind of idea, God had pre-scientific, so to speak, foreknowledge about these things. He could tell them to do this or not to do that. The idea, even as we've talked about recently, of quarantining away from people to protect others that might need to be done uh, from time to time, God could say those things. And even in the book of Job, as it talks about the creation of the earth and God talks about these things, people spent years in fact, I don't know if this research is exact, but someone uh, said one time that the idea of the, the water cycle, that it may even been the 1500s, Now I may be off on that, but even the 1500s before they began, there was actually documentation and discussion of the water cycle. Well, here it is in 931 BC, if that's about right. I don't know about the wind currents either. Uh, I heard a number that was way later that I don't know would be true because if you think about you know people who traveled around and, and searching the, the earth for a time, they would have known about wind currents and putting up sails and that kind of thing. Uh, but some of these things were unknown to men of that day. And yet here... The wise man is writing about the water cycle and the wind currents. Verse number six might even be a reference uh, to an ocean gyre or the, the Coriolis effect, if you're familiar with that. That idea uh, is, is one where, if I can explain it very briefly here, um, but, you know, if you're sitting, say, on a merry-go-round, you got four people sitting on a merry-go-round across from each other, and, and you start spinning, and you go to throw the ball, it's not going to go right to the person across from you, right? A lot of times it'll go and it'll go sideways to the person next to you. Why well, does that happen? Well, it's the effect of the earth spinning and the wind and the rotation. And that's this idea, maybe, that's mentioned here, even in verse number six. This is why, this is what makes hurricanes spin. Think about the earth rotating, you think about hurricanes spinning. also heard someone say this is what makes Jupiter's red dot kind of spin. If you see a video of Jupiter, that that red dot is spinning, the planet is spinning, all that is the effect of wind upon an object, and this may be even a reference to something like that. Now, we know that this is poetry, right? This is wisdom literature, and we often say the Bible is not a science textbook, per se, but yet... These things were still unknown, and maybe God sometimes, or the Holy Spirit is writing these things that people could know if they were just thinking about the world around them. So it's kind of interesting to consider maybe there was a little bit of pre-science, pre-scientific knowledge to be considered here. Uh, one thing that I would like to just mention briefly, uh, I didn't put a slide up of this either, but one thing that we usually try to mention is if Jesus is referenced, right? We talk about the whole Bible being about Jesus, the Old Testament pointing the way towards Jesus coming, Jesus coming, and then those after uh, thinking about his life and his death and thinking about his second coming. Well, there's no actual messianic messianic prophecies here or types or any types if you look in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes in verse number 10 Ecclesiastes 12 10 uh, there's a mention of words of truth uh, that could be a, a vague reference possibly uh, even in chapter 12 in verse 11 there's the name of it mentions at the end of verse number 11 given by one shepherd now, again, the Bible I'm using has the word shepherd capitalized. So whoever, you know, kind of put this together or, or use this obviously thinks that is a reference to Jesus. Uh, and maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But it might be a little vague. But there's no direct prophecies that are mentioned here. Perhaps, perhaps Jesus is best seen in the preacher. Go over to Luke for just a moment. Let's, let's do turn to the book of Luke if you're following along. Luke chapter 11 Yes, Luke chapter 11 and verse 31. As Jesus is speaking here, Luke 11 verse 31. He talks about the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So perhaps Jesus is best seen in the idea of the preacher, greater than Solomon, and he's coming to declare to the world the true meaning of life. That's what the book is about, trying to find what life is about, the the message of it. And so maybe that's the best way to see Jesus in the book of Ecclesiastes is through the idea of the preacher, or one greater than Solomon, as he mentions there in Luke chapter 11. Well, what's the message What's the message or the theme? We might say that the message is true happiness, which is or equal to living for God. That true happiness is living for God. That's the bottom line. The writer here is saying he has searched for the greatest good, the true meaning of life. And the bottom line is, excuse me, the bottom line is apart from God or under the sun, life is is meaningless but true happiness is found in this idea that we would live for him there's a lot of other things that we could make mention of just very briefly one is of course remembering god in your youth ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number one is the idea of young people while there is time i think it's great to consider this book being written at the end of his life the encouragement to young folks you know i have some regrets Some things I wish I had done better, learn from me. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. We certainly appreciate as sort of maybe another message or theme, uh, a time for everything, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We've already mentioned this, but there is a time for everything. That is a great lesson for us as Christians. There are times for things. Times, certain times maybe to approach someone, certain times to say certain things, and certain ways to handle certain things, and so that could even be a bit of a secondary message here. But what I want to leave you with is the idea of thinking about the message of the first 11 chapters. In fact, that's the last point here, the last question, if you have your notes in front of you there, the bulletin. But think for a moment, what would you think about the book of Ecclesiastes if chapter 12 wasn't included now I'm going to give you again that most of us probably haven't sat down and read chapters 1 through 11 a lot right we've just not done that it's not been something that we've considered but there are we're a group of people when the Bible has been put together and this is a class we may need to have sometime soon but the idea of how we got the Bible which is a great study to consider but when you go back and look at how we got the Bible When you study the book of Ecclesiastes, there were a group of people who said that the the book of Ecclesiastes shouldn't have been included. Because if you read chapters 1 through 11, it is a very nihilistic, very fatalistic, very down and sort of, we might even use the word depressing kind of book. Because the message is, life is meaningless. Right? I mean, there are people who are agnostic who, who like that idea. Uh, They don't necessarily believe in God, which would be theism. They don't necessarily believe there is no God, which is atheism. But they're agnostic. They say, I don't know. And maybe I don't even care. And so that's what some people would take if they read chapters 1 through 11. They would say that this book is very fatalistic. It's very depressing. Because it's just about telling us that life is meaningless. But when you come to chapter 12, chapter 12 says... Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You see, there is no purpose in life without God. And that's the message. If you want to live your life without God, there is no purpose. It is meaningless in many ways. And and we don't want to be so harsh, maybe, to some people. We don't want to be um, so down about things. But I often have that question. If you were maybe to come across someone who's struggling, maybe they're considering the Bible or considering God, the question might be, well, well what do you expect to happen? You know, do you think that there is no afterlife? Do you think that we just die and, and then we're gone? What do you think happens? Because if you believe there is an afterlife, then we have other discussions we can have. If you believe there is a God, then we need to talk about his word. Life has no purpose without God. And that's what the writer is trying to say to us. And I've heard some people suggest that maybe Ecclesiastes was Solomon's open letter of repentance. He's saying, I learned by lesson, and I'm turning back to God. The conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and keep his commandment. This is the whole of man. This is the whole duty of man. And so I ask you what you might think without chapter 12. I might challenge you. Go read chapters 1 through 11 and see what you think realizing that life is vanity, that all things are worthless, we have no purpose here, there's nothing good, nothing new, nothing for us to do in a sense. But then realize, realize that there is a God in heaven that we talked about this morning, that we should fear him and we should keep his commandments. And with that in mind, then we have a purpose, we have hope. And we can take that encouragement from this book, even as we think about it in its entirety. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, yeah, Absolutely, if you can, but as we are blessed here tonight, there is still time and opportunity, and even if maybe you've missed out on some youthful days of service to him, you can think about the life that lies ahead, and even in this moment, serving him, and I hope that you'll take some encouragement from this lesson this evening and this book as we think about those thoughts of the wise man. As we conclude this lesson, we are about to sing a song of invitation to encourage you to do just that, That's exactly why we extend Heaven's invitation at the end of each lesson, to allow you to think about your life, to allow you to think about the God in Heaven, and to see how your life is matching up with His Word. Maybe you're here tonight in the audience and you've never become a child of God. As you think about that possibility, the idea that life is meaningless, not knowing God, that there is no hope of Heaven without being a child of God, we'll be singing to encourage you to obey His simple plan of salvation. If you'd like to know more this evening, we'd love to study with you as soon as possible. Maybe you're here and you've done that and you've had that feeling of hope. I mean, most of us can go back to that point and remember the change that took place and the feeling of knowing that it didn't necessarily matter. I mean, we're not just going to go take our own life or allow something bad to happen, but in a sense, we have peace knowing that we are serving the living God and he has a home prepared for us. Maybe you're here tonight and you've forgotten that feeling As you have enjoyed this life and allowed the things of this life to get you down, you sometimes feel like the writer of Ecclesiastes looking back on past problems and sin. You don't have to continue in that state. You can repent of your sin and pray to God for forgiveness, and we're thankful that he will do just that, that we can again walk in the light as he is in the light. We're thankful to be assembled together as Christians, as a body of people to encourage one another and to encourage you even through the singing of this song as we stand together and as we sing.